This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Loriana Sargent. Now, I first came across Loriana's story after seeing an incredibly powerful video on social media, and I was blown away by the brother and sisterhood exhibited as she went through her cancer diagnosis and treatment. So we discuss a host of topics, from her journey into the fire service, being part of an elite rowing team, firefighter fitness, mental health, sleep, the physical and mental road to recovery post-cancer, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Loriana Sargent. Enjoy. Well, Loriana, I want to start by saying, firstly, I am so glad that we're having this conversation. When I first, you know, we first kind of connected online, your department had unified behind you and your cancer diagnosis, and here we are having this conversation. So firstly, I want to welcome you from, you know, for two different reasons to the Behind the Shield podcast. Well, thank you. I, you know, when you asked me to, if I would come on, I just, I was extremely honored. Um, and uh, I think, you know, like we said, if my story can help somebody, then then let's put it out there. Absolutely. Well, it's an important story as well. And obviously, we'll dive into that when we get to that point. But a lot of places that I have worked in and um, in a lot of states, breast cancer and some of the, the female-specific cancers aren't covered under some of these presumptive laws, if they even have presumptive laws in the first place. So I think I have had, um, you know, widows of firefighters that have passed away and I've had firefighters that have overcome cancer, but they were male. But I think it's an important side because some of our women out there, and we're going to discuss the the loopholes of the uh, the coverage that you endured, um, but some of these women aren't covered at all from the cancers that they're most likely to get, especially if they're working shift work and exposed to carcinogens like we are. Right, right. Um, and, you know, it, I guess I guess until you end up in that position, you don't think too much about it. And because predominantly, you know, our field is, is male um, and that's who ends up getting it more, it seems like. But, you know, there are a lot of women out there that have experienced it. San Francisco had a study of they're doing a lot of research and they've had, they've done research on um, the carcinogens and, you know, taking levels of different things of women after fires, blood work, doing blood work and, and actually proving that it's, it is in their system. So, um, and it's not just, you know, it's all kinds of, I'm sure most cancers that affect women are also more prevalent in the fire service with female firefighters. 
Absolutely. Well, before we get into to your journey, where are we speaking to you from? Where are you sitting right now? I am sitting in my living room in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Beautiful. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. So I was actually born here in Albuquerque. Um, my dad, when I was young, was a teacher, a uh, high school teacher. Uh, my mom pretty much stayed home with us. Um, and then he got to the point where he it was, I remember watching him come home every day after work and he was just exhausted and, and his students. I, and I also remember visiting his classrooms and his students loved him. Um, but he needed a change. So he started, uh, a job loading freight with a company called yellow freight and Navajo freight. I think it was at the time. And he was part-time, he was on call. So he finally got on, he got on full-time and they closed down, they were closing down the terminal here and moving everybody to Phoenix and building a big facility in Barstow, California. Most people have driven through there <laughs> <laughs> only, only in stop to get gas. Um, so he was low on the, low on the list for seniority. So uh, we ended up in Barstow. We didn't, we didn't end up in Phoenix. So we left here when I was in seventh grade and um, moved to a small, smaller desert town. I tell everybody that we went from purgatory to hell when we left <laughs> Barstow. Um, so um, we moved there. I was in eighth grade and um, went to high school there. And, you know, I can say what, you know, people can say what they want about that place, but um, I can call any one of my friends from there right now and tell them I'm broken down on the side of the road and I'll be there, you know, like, there's such a tight knit community there that, um, that I still feel very much part of to this day. So, um, yeah, there's that. Um, I have, or I had two brothers, both older. And, um, so we all, the whole family moved out there at that time. Um, I ended up going to, Stayed, I think, in I stayed about a year after high school. Didn't think I was going to go to college. Um, I was a gymnast when I was in high school and um, realized that I might be able to get a um, walk on to the Long Beach State gymnastics team at the time. So I decided to go down. A friend of mine, actually, where I was working, um, you know, I, I didn't even think about that until later on, until I got down to, to Long Beach to go to college. But, um, you know, I was working. She's like, hey, you, you were just doing our job. She goes, you want to go to school in Long Beach? I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I do. Let's go. Let's, let's just go ahead and go. So I went to the junior college down there, um, did some gymnastics. And right around that time, Long Beach State got rid of their gymnastics team. And my dad told me, he goes, you know, you will always – because he played football in college or he went to college to play football. He got a scholarship and he said, I went for the sport, but I stayed for the school. And um, I remembered that and I thought, well, I'm already here. I'm just going to go ahead and, and keep going. So I, I got my associates associates at Long Beach city transferred over to Long Beach state. And um, I heard about this. And at the time I was kind of like, I don't know, I was, 
doing the college thing, of course, you know, and this behavior bled over from high school, a lot of partying, um, that kind of thing. And I thought, you know, I really need, I, I thought to myself, I really need to get my shit together. And I contemplated joining the military. And, and then one day I heard about this, this, team that gets up at like five o'clock in the morning and they go and they row a boat. And I was like, that sounds like that. There's a lot of structure involved with that. Like, you know, that's not going to be easy. So I went and joined the rowing team. So um, I was on Long Beach state crew, which um, at first you have a boat full of people that don't know what they're doing. The novice boat. And um, one of the most frustrating things in the world. And I was always an individual athlete. I was dependent on myself to, to do well in whatever event I was in. And it was really hard when, you know, there's somebody else in the boat doing something that they shouldn't be doing is what's going on in my head. Anyway, (laughs) that's the way I perceived it. Um, And um, it was just incredibly frustrating, but when it came together and it came together and it was like no other feeling at the time, like it was just incredible to fly in that boat with everybody doing the same thing at the same time. And the amount of, of family and community and uh, team that I felt from that was just so, um, so deep. So um, yeah. So that was like one of the, that was one of the best decisions I ever made was to, to join that team. Just to jump in for a second. When I think of a gymnast, I think of a very petite yet strong woman when i think of a rower i think of a very long individual so what was your body type and which one was the better fit for you i was in the middle of both of those so um i was fairly small when i was younger but as i got into my teenage years 15 16 i remember um having to relearn some things because i grew taller like things weren't as easy to do um some things. Um, and then as far as the rowing went, yeah, you're right. You know, they think of people who have, who are taller, have more leverage. Um, but I was pretty, I was hanging with them. I am five, five. And, um, but I was strong. Like I was really strong from gymnastics. So, um, the taller, the teams that I was on being taller, wasn't necessarily better. Um, I could still pull a 2000 meter erg like somebody who was three or four inches taller than me sometimes, you know? Um, so, but it was, yeah. And, and, and there was actually even somebody shorter on my team, <laughs> in my, on my rowing team. So, and, but she had legs like tree trunks. Like she was, she was a, uh, she was a, I think an Olympic lifter. Um, but Yeah. So it, it was, I was in the middle of bo- in both of those sports, I think, like as far as height goes, <clears throat> but I loved it. It was, um, it was one of those things that um, it, it was actually kind of a catalyst to get me into the fire service. Cause at the time when I was at Long Beach state, when I was at Long Beach city, I thought I wanted to get my degree in, in criminal justice. I thought I wanted to be a police officer. So I took some classes and they were pretty cool. And, and then I thought, well, what if I don't want to do this? So when I went, when I transferred over to Long Beach state, I just, I thought, let's just go more general. And I got my degree in psychology. I can 
go down different paths if I want to with that degree. And, um, and when I started rowing, um, I really, really enjoyed the teamwork. I really enjoyed, um, everybody, you know, you're there. If you're late for practice after practice, you got thrown in the water because your team is waiting for you. Like you're, you know, so, um, I was working for the athletic director at the time at Long Beach state. And one of my, uh, one of the coaches softball coach, her husband was a firefighter in Pasadena and we all played softball together. So I started talking to him about it. And then another lady I worked with in the office, her husband was a firefighter for LA city. So I, I talked to her about it. And so I thought, you know what, more and more I talked to, to these people, the more and more I think that firefighting is what I want to do. It's more team oriented. I'm still, what I was looking for is being, you know, physically challenged and, and challenged mentally and continually learning something. Um, so I started to go down that path of testing in the fire service, which I did a lot of in Southern California in the early nineties, everybody wanted to be a firefighter. <laughs> You you were in California. You were in California. Also. I was yeah. now. I, I had already done just shy of a year in Florida. So you have a guy that's you know already working as a firefighter that's willing to fly two and a half thousand miles to test. I think you know they looked at the app and was okay. I think I think <laughs> there's some commitment here. But um, when I tested for Anaheim, there was a thousand men and women who were all either firefighter EMTs or paramedics with experience, you know, volunteering, ambulance operator, et cetera, et cetera. What were the, what was that kind of competitive element when you were testing back in the nineties? Oh God. So it was, it was, it was high. It was up there. Um, and this is, this was when I was in college still and looking at starting to get my feet into the testing scene. Um, there was, I do remember taking a test with LA County and there was 20,000 people that took that written test. Crazy. <laughs> and like you said, most of them are already every, the thing was everybody wants to go County, you know, like that, that was kind of the thing that was being said back then was everybody wants to go County. Cause I think their benefits were better. And you know, the, the areas that you ended up working in, working in were better. Um, so um I took a lot of tests. I had a calendar of just like what, what testing every weekend I'd go test somewhere. Um, and then the softball coach's husband was an instructor at Foothill fire Academy. So it was an Academy that was in Pasadena. Um, I think they put through eight or nine classes, maybe 10 classes. And I was in the seventh class and it was something that you paid to go through. So <clears throat> he kind of talked me into that and I was like, you know what, let's just, and this was, I think, yeah, I had already graduated from college. If I'm going to do this, let's try to get a foot up on everybody else. Cause everybody had experience. Like you said, everybody else testing had experience. So I had none, no experience at all in the fire service or as an EMT. So um, I went through Foothill fire Academy as a part-time Academy it was on weekends. So I worked my regular job during the week. And at that time I was working in a brain injury and stroke rehab facility. Um, and 
it was, it ended up being six months. And during that time I got my EMT basic also. And then, so out of that, I had, I got my firefighter one in California. That's the other thing about California and Florida. They're all, they have their own at the time. I don't know if they're IFSAC now, but they used to be like, if you don't have California state certification, then, you know, a lot of departments wouldn't really even look at you. So the smaller well, one. It's weird because I actually experienced that with Anaheim. What it really boils down to is whether the department will accept you or not. There's, there's, I think reciprocation is down to the department ultimately. And what was interesting when I left, um, they had a hiring freeze because I left for my family. I was actually going to go back after my divorce. And then they changed it to, oh, you have to be a California fire academy graduate i'm like i literally worked for you for several years so you know again it can work in your favor or work against you depending on who that person is at the helm right well and 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 the thing that i found you hit on was it's up to the department so there was a lot of like there's a lot of smaller departments that i tested with and i did well with and i was later told but didn't get hired was later told um, we were required to recruit females, but we're not required to hire them. So somehow it's back then it was written in because of affirmative action. Some of their policies were let's, we can recruit them and let's get them on the list. But, and they were, these are small departments, you know, so there was no females there at the time. They don't want any, they didn't want any. So, um, yeah, so I did I did that. I did that a lot. With LA City, I did really well on um I had an academy date and um but it was like one of the it was one of the first departments that I had gotten that far in the process. And I had had knee surgery, torn meniscus, and I told them everything. Like I, you know, I told them everything. I was <laughs> being honest about everything. And um so the the doctor went in there and he was pulling on my knee and he's like, I don't think you have an ACL. And I was like, I was rowing, I, you know, did all this stuff. And he goes, sent me off to do some tests. And they found that there was a lot of laxity in that knee. There's a lot of give, but that leg was stronger than my other, other leg. And he said, we can't accept you because of that. He goes, you won't withstand firefighting duties, whatever. So, and we'll get to that part later on because there's more to that, but okay. So um, I went through the academy, I rode, I did all these things. Um, some departments in California at the time, Pasadena was one of them, they would hire auxiliary firefighters. So you weren't actually getting paid, but you got to come one day a week, do a 24-hour shift. Um, at six months, you test out. And if you completed all your skills, then... Um, you know, stay, stay up to a year. And if they're, and if they were to hire somebody, they would take off that group of people. So I was there for a year and the year came and went. And my captain said, just keep coming back, just keep coming back. And I was like, okay. So, you know, I went to a year and a half and they hadn't hired anybody. And, um, I'm like, you know, cap, I got to find a job. I, I was still working my other job in brain injury, but, um, like, I really, I think I need to put more time into like finding a firefighting job. So, um, so I left there and they didn't hire for like another five years. I think it was like, they just didn't have the movement in their, in their department. 
So it was a good thing I didn't try to stay. Um, <laughs> Keep coming back. I've been coming back. I've got a beard and gray hair now. Yeah. So um, my mom worked for the Marine Corps base in Barstow and her one of her friends worked for Human Resources and she told her, why doesn't she look into the bases on or the fire departments on base? And I had no idea that they were staff and civilians, you know, some of them. So um, at the time, before the internet, she brought me a big list of places that were hiring. And I filled out a bunch of their applications and I sent them out. And I got a call back from this little, this small munitions base, army base in Illinois. And they said, the chief said, yeah, you know, uh, we're looking at your resume and, or your application and and we'd like to hire you. And I said, do you, don't I have to come out and take a written test? And he's like, no, I'm about a physical agility. And he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, and I go, um, background, you know, and is there anything? He goes, well, we're hiring you based on the merits of your, and your experience you have on your application. Um, that would be the experience with Pasadena and, and going through the Academy. And, and so, um, oh, and as an EMT, I also, um, volunteered as, uh, EMT at the military rodeo Cowboys association out of Camp Pendleton. So, got a lot of trauma experience there. Um, but so I said, and I always told myself I would never turn down a paid firefighting position if it was offered to me. So I said, all right, I guess I'm going to Illinois. So, um, I moved out there. I moved from Southern, Southern California to a town of 1700 people. (laughs) in Illinois that was on the Mississippi river and the base basically was closing. So there, they, the position I took was what they called a term term employment. So there was conditional, it wasn't going to last more than four years, that job. Um, so there was not a lot going on there. Like the, the only military on base was the commander and he was there just to make sure everything got shut down. Um, I ended up going to a couple of schools. I think I went to fire inspector one and two, like they had a little budget and they're like, Hey, who wants to go? I was like, I'll go, you know? So, um, as soon as I got there, I started looking again at other positions because with DOD fire departments, if you get your foot in the door, kind of, if you get hired in one, it's easy to go to another base anywhere. Right. Um, so I looked at, uh, sent some applications off. <clears throat> and at the time, um, what turned out to be my oldest son's dad, um, I had met him in California. He was at Fort Bragg in the army and I was completely bored where I was at. Like there's nothing happening. So I'm like, I'm going to take a trip. I'm going to come see you. So while I was there, I was like, let's just stop by the stations, the fire stations, and see if I can talk to somebody. So I ended up doing that. And one of the stations I ta- I stopped at, I ended up talking to the chief of the department. And um, he goes, we're going to have some openings. Um, you know, just keep checking. Just keep checking online. So when they did have openings, he actually gave me a phone call and said, you need to apply. So I applied for a job there, and I ended up going there. 
I was much, much happier there. A uh, lot more going on. Um, that department had five stations at the time. I was just out there a couple of weeks ago and it's doubled. The stations have doubled. Now, was that yeah, DOD or are you talking about municipal department now? That was DOD. It's Fort okay. Bragg. Fire department. Yeah. Okay. On Fort Bragg itself. Okay. Yeah. So Fort Bragg at the time, this was before 9-11. It was open. Like the base was open. There's certain areas that were, that were secured like, you know, um, JSOC or, um, Camp McCall, which is where they trained special forces. Um, and so people would use that, all the roads on that base to go, to go from one town to the next. There were a lot of commuters that would just drive through and the amount of car accidents that we had, like I got pretty honed in on my skills when it came to extrication and car accidents, because there's just a lot of them. When I went back this last time, like it's all closed off now. And one of my friends that still works there, he goes, I am convinced that like that saved a lot of lives when it came to the car accidents. Cause they were just driving through and, you know, just a lot more, more, more people on base, <clears throat> but it was, it was a good job. I loved working there. Um, it was busy. We had mutual aid with, all the surrounding communities. We were first in on a lot of the fires of um, the towns surrounding us. Um, got a lot of good experience there. And, but there, you know, the army budget didn't have much of a budget there. They were pulling from other things to make things happen, buy new trucks, that kind of thing. It was, it was things done there were done very practical from is what I used to consider it. Because after I left there, um, I, I ended up getting pregnant there. My son's dad, you know, that I went to go see, we ended up together, had my son there. Um, and then he was getting my, his dad was getting out of the army. So we were looking to come back out West because my family was in California and here in Albuquerque, his family was in California. So I started just looking, you know, again, through the bases and Kirtland Air Force Base here was phasing out all their military. So they were hiring 26 civilians at the time. So my chief at Fort Bragg knew the chief here. There was a phone call made and it was like, you know, my chief there was like, I don't want to let you go, but you go ahead and go. <laughs> but if you want that job, it's, you know, they basically hired, asked me if I wanted to, to be hired here. So after I applied. And, um, so I came to Kirtland and, um, the difference between army and air force fire departments is, is pretty big when it comes to the money. Um, but I found that here I was or at Kirtland. I spent seven years there. They had a lot of money and they had a lot of money for training. And just like everywhere else, you know, anytime they asked, kind of like I said, I would never turn down a paid job. Anytime there's any, education offered, I, I would go. When we hazmat, I'm going to go. WMD, I'll go, you know, whatever it was. So, um, I was thankful for that. I look back at that and I was, I'm thankful for that. Um, but it was very slow. Um, there wasn't a lot going on as far as like actual firefighting or even medical calls. So when it came time to, I was going to test when I first got to Albuquerque, I tried to get into the city, but they would not accept my EMT from another state. 
I had to have a New Mexico State EMT. And you had to take a class to get reciprocity to get that here in the state of New Mexico when you're coming from another state. And I didn't, I missed the class. There's only one a year. So um, that, that, that chance, that time fell through. That was in 2001. And then in 2004 ish, I was thought about testing or I did test 2003. I tested and they had just put in, they had just instituted the, the uh, CPAT or the, for the physical agility. And I had missed that by the last two breach and pools. Um, so probably, I don't know, 20 seconds maybe. So the next year they had um, a class where they were having you come in and let you get your hands on everything and run through the course and practice. And so, but it was at that time I was getting married and it was all happening at the same time. And I, I was like, I can't do this all at the same time. So <clears throat> long story short, I stayed at Kirtland for a number of years. And um, after just being like really frustrated, I, there was a lateral class that was going to go through the city. And it was the second one in two years. And I decided, you know, and it was right after I had had my second kid. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'll try, I'll try. I thought I was done testing because I was 40 years old at the time. And um, so I took the written test and I passed. I took the, and I was training for the agility and, and I took the agility and I passed. And, um, and the door is just like, like I always think back to my experience trying to get in the fire service. And there was always, for whatever reason, the doors wouldn't open. You know, I was pushing and pushing and testing and couldn't get in. And this, when this came along, it was like that door opened and that door opened and that door opened and that door opened. And I just walked right through them. And um, so I ended up getting hired in that lateral class for the city. So just before we transition into Albuquerque, you were in, you were a military firefighter pre and post 9-11. From the fire service perspective within the military, what changes did you see pre and post? Or pre versus post, should I say? So I actually wasn't in the military. I worked on military bases. I was a civilian. Um, so like I said, the, um, the, of course at Fort Bragg, everything was shut, everything, there's gates to get into the whole base now, where as before it was wide open, uh, major roads were running through there. They have a highway that runs through there. Um, the, the, of course, certain areas were shut, were closed off, um, at Kirtland here on the Air Force Base, what I did notice was, you know, in the morning you just, actually there was a sticker on our car. There was a sticker on my window that you'd go to the gate and they would just wave you in. And the reason I remember this is because the sticker for the army is, that civilian sticker is, the color of it was, in the Air Force was for like an officer in the Air Force. So they would salute me every time <laughs> I went in. And that's just a weird thing I remember because my kid would be in the back and he'd salute him back. He'd have his little car seat. Um, 
which is funny now because he's an army officer now, but <laughs> so there you go. He's being groomed. Um, yeah. So um, it was easy to get on base. Like you just had a sticker um, after nine 11, they were issued you an ID. They had to check your ID. Sometimes they run it, you know, to see if it was like really the real thing. Um, the security was just a lot higher to get on. And, um, and there were times that you couldn't get off base sometimes. Cause if there was some sort of threat, they'd shut the gates down going in or coming out. So, um, yeah, just the security is much higher. And then at Kirtland, so we also protected the uh, airport, the flight line. So there's always a level, definitely a higher level of security there um, before, even before 9-11. But um, afterwards, there's, you know, even higher, just just the different um, protocols that you have to be able to get out there or to drive in and out of the, the airfield. So interesting okay so sorry i stopped you right when you got to albuquerque i was just kind of curious because it's quite a unique lens that you had being within the military even though you weren't military yourself seeing you know the changes from from that perspective yeah yeah it was it was uh yeah seeing it from both perspectives like i think about 9 11 seeing it from you know looking at how the military dealt with that and then also how the fire service dealt with that they're both heavily involved. Um, yeah. So, um, I get, I got over to the city and when I went into the Academy, it was an abbreviated Academy because it was a lateral Academy. So it was 12 weeks, the, the full Academy at the time at the entry level was 16 weeks, I believe. Um, and no, I think it was more than that. And um, so I had just had my kid. He was nine months old when I went into the academy. I was going through a divorce. And I had an eight-year-old at home also. And um, and this academy, like the guys that, the lateral class, there was a bunch of us that came from went from Kirtland over there. So a lot of the guys from Kirtland were Air Force firefighters had been in the air force and going through the academy there, I heard from a number of them, you know, this is way harder than anything we did in the military. This is harder than boot camp. This is harder than, you know, a lot of things. So, um, it was, it was physically demanding, very physically demanding. And my body is still like, what, wait, what? You just had a kid. And, you know, so <laughs> it's trying to get over that. And when I went into the academy, when I had when when I got pregnant with my son, I was I think 142 pounds. When I went into the my my normal weight is around 140, 138-ish. Um when I went into the academy, I weighed 126 pounds. So I, I yeah, and so it was it was just, you know, I think it was breastfeeding, it was stress, it was um working out to to pass the agility. So I went in and, um, and I'm one of those people that like, there's, there's no turning back. Like if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. There's, there's no, no going back to Kirtland. There's no failing. Um, you're going to have to fire me, you know, I'm going to have to fall out and you're going to have to drag me off the drill field, whatever. 
So there was just no quit. And, um, and there was days definitely like running in the desert, you know, they, they tried hard to break us and every class they tried hard to. And, um, there was days I was running and I would just be like, God, please let me pass out. Just let me pass out. <laughs> I could use a nap because my son was still getting up two or three times a night also. Yeah. So, um, so I got to the point where like I'd weigh myself and I got to like 120 and I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't weigh myself anymore. I can't know what I'm, where I'm at, whatever. So I got through, we, we I got through it. Um, and, and I think a, a big part of me getting through was I had already been in the fire service for a number of years. I'd been through, I actually went through another Academy at, in North Carolina. I don't know if you want to call it Academy. It was more like classes to get my IFSAC because they needed me to have an IFSAC certification. The California one didn't count. So um, I've seen this material over and over and over again. Um, so a lot of that was um, not hard. Learning that the policies of the department here were different. That was what I had to learn. So uh, yeah. So I ended up getting through that academy and <laughs> strangely enough, I was first assigned to the station that was in the neighborhood I grew up in that I left. So I literally went like full circle all the way around the United States back into the same neighborhood that I was, uh, that I grew up in. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's what was supposed to happen. You know, all these other departments that I tested for, it just wasn't going to happen in those places. So Albuquerque specifically, you've, you've been in Illinois, you've been in California, so you've got a pretty national you know, perspective of the country. When you came back wearing a uniform now, what were some of the unique elements, whether it's the calls, the population, etc., back in your home city that you hadn't seen as a firefighter in some of these other places? Um, down and outs, a lot. <laughs> um, Pasadena, I don't, you know, it's Pasadena, it's higher end, you know, there's nicer houses. You're not, you know, you're not in South central. You're not in, um, you're not in areas where there's, where economically it's challenged. Um, and the bases, you definitely didn't see that. Um, but here, you know, going out and pip picking up people who are just out and drunk on on uh, on the streets was something that that was new to me. I would see it, you know, around here, living here, and especially up and down. We call it the Central Corridor. Central is a street that runs through the middle of town, and it's Route 66, basically. Um, any of our stations that are along that corridor are the busy stations. And a big part of that has to do with, with that population of people that we pick up. Um, you know, it, back then it was drunks. Now it's, now it's fentanyl. Now it's overdoses. Um, I still have, still have a lot of drunk, drunk people, but, um, that was one of the big things that I noticed that was different in the fire service. 
from department to department. Yeah. Now educate me as well. Um, is, is there a Native, excuse me, a Native American ele element? That's the wrong word. A Native American population in your area? Because for some reason that's that's ringing in my mind. Yeah, very big. We're surrounded by. Um, so our city to the east is the mountains. That kind of cuts off. You know, you can't build so much more up in the mountains. To the north is a reservation. To the west is a reservation, and to the south. So. We're surrounded by uh, Indian land and Native American reservations, so that's that's a pretty big element. Um, that's not all, you know. There's all kinds of people that are drunk out there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm not saying that that was the the people who were drunk, but it's I've had people on here, and they they gave me an insight that I think most people don't realize about some of these reservations. We think of reservations like, Oh, they're all wealthy and they've got casinos and they get these government handouts. What are you seeing of some of these? Of course, I'm sure there are people that are absolutely flourishing people that are, you know, uh, an incredible health, but what are some of the, the myths or the, the visions behind the curtain of some of these reservations that people probably aren't aware of? Well, I think that, um, I think, and I don't know a lot of it because I don't visit the reservations, you know, but I do have a friend that's a native American gal that, um, she was, I actually worked with her at Kirtland and during COVID she started collecting supplies and food to take them out to the Navajo reservation because there's people out there that didn't have any running water and that they found that I think that, she was saying that the, um, you know, COVID did run through there so quickly and so rampant because there was no running water in a lot of homes. They, they couldn't wash their hands. You know, they couldn't, you know, do the things that everybody who lives in a, a normal neighborhood would do. Um, and there's really spread out a lot of them. Um, I haven't witnessed that firsthand. Um, that's just what I've, I've read from what she has said. Um, but I think that, I think that it's true. I mean, there, there, there may be, there may be a lot of, and granted, I will say that the, definitely the casinos, when I first got back here in 2001, you know, there were tents, there were big tents and now they're resorts. There's golf courses, there's spas, there's, you know, um, and I don't know how much of that money goes back to, to the people, but I also think that, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's been proven that alcoholism is a hereditary thing. It can be a hereditary thing. And, um, and given the choice, uh, sometimes, you know, it, say if somebody, whoever they are, it doesn't matter what, what population they come from. If you're given money, if you don't already have a structure of how am I going to use that usefully, it may just not get used in a, in a beneficial way for that person. You know, it may go to substances. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to see. It really is because, um, you know, I always tell people in the fire service, especially in here working in the city, I've come to the realization, people always ask why, you know, how, isn't it hard to see, see people die? And isn't it hard to see like traumatic calls? And 
And I had to think about that. And I thought, you know, it's not hard for me. And this might sound bad, but it, it's not hard for me to see people die. That's like, to me, that's something that is going to happen to everybody. It's hard for me to see how people live and, and how they carry on their day to day. Sometimes, you know, there's looking for the next fix because they're in pain because they're addicted to opiates or, or looking for the next drink, because if they don't, they're going to seize and they possibly can die. So, um, or even just living homeless, you know, choosing to be homeless or living with a mental, mental health condition. I had a brother that was schizophrenic. And um, so those calls are the ones that get me. It's not seeing the death. It's the ones, it's the people that are alive and watching that, that evolve. That's hard for me. Well, with Native American, you just kind of, I never really thought of that particular group specifically, but I talk a lot about multi-generational trauma. Now, if you were from a tribe that used to roam the land at one point, and again, I'm not disnifying it, of course, there were tribes that fought other tribes and, you know, highs and lows and good people and bad people, but then not too long ago, they're taken from their land, they are put into these places. You know, it's it's no wonder that we also have mental health challenges and addiction in those communities when there's basically a lot of unresolved trauma because these people came from other countries and then moved them across the land and stuck them in one area. And like you said, and then years later, we're like, oh, sorry. And when we start throwing money at them, is that getting to the root of the problem? And I think we're seeing clearly that it's not. Absolutely. It's it's like the ultimate multi ultimate uh case of like child abuse you know you 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 take them you hurt them and then you try to and then you try to like uh, well not you but whoever the abuser is is like oh let me give you this let me give you that you know and just make you feel okay because they feel bad because of what they've done to you you know so um yeah and there is that trauma is is there it does run deep you know and and um i think that is it's really overlooked in our nation for sure. Um, I actually also, um, we talked about the 62 Romeo thing briefly, or we had brought it up, but Jeremiah Wilbur, um, I ran on a, I worked overtime one night and I ran on a, a gal, Native American gal, and she was, she had broken free from human trafficking. And it was, she had been away from it for like 10 years and she was trying, she, she was at that, that time was having an issue with anxiety. She had a lot going on anyway. Um, and I had listened to your podcast with him and I was like, in my head, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, I got to connect her with him. You know, like it just kind of clicked. And just because of what she was telling me, what she was trying to do, she was trying to, she was like out on the streets in Albuquerque in the worst areas of town, talking to, to um, prostitutes and to, you know, drug addicts and just trying to get them to listen to like her story. And like, there's another way to do, there's another way to live kind of thing. And, um, And so I actually uh, messaged him on Instagram and I connected with him and I'm like, and we talked and he's like, and I told him what was going on. He goes, well, yeah, just give her my number, you know, we'll try to. So, um, yeah. (laughs) So I appreciate so much what you do. 
<laughs> well, that's so that's so good to hear. Now you touched on um, human trafficking. Another Albuquerque group that I've had Nick McKinley on. I've had uh, Carl Smith is Deliver Fund. Have you ever okay. crossed paths with them? I have not. I haven't. So that, um, that's what you need to listen to next because they basically Nick was. Um, oh my goodness, he was a pararescue and I think one of the letter agencies, I don't want to butcher, I think it was CIA as well for a bit, but he okay. realized that local law enforcement basically had no tools to fight human trafficking. There's no division for that specifically. So what they did is that, well, we're great at Intel and we have all these resources, so they create files and then they give them to law enforcement and then they can make the arrest. But what was so interesting speaking to both of them was as a firefighter paramedic, I started going back in my mind when they started telling me signs and, you know, because you think of trafficking like a white van, you know, stops next to someone, the door slides open, balaclava bearing men fling someone in and off they drive. And of course, it's nothing like that. The reality is a lot more subtle. But I look back and then calls hit me. I'm like, well, shit, that was probably... Yeah, that was a pimp in that room. That was, you know, and, and it really started adding up. So it's such a great couple of interviews to listen to when you're in the first responder community because we just don't, as you said, with education with trauma when we're young, we also don't ed get educated on things like that. We get told how to use a halogen. We get told how to pull hose, but we don't get told how to, you know, take care of a patient who has autism or, or Down syndrome. We don't get told how to identify that maybe that OD you've got is actually an attempted murderer of a prostitute that the pimp doesn't want anymore. I mean, all these things start rolling in and that's all out of Albuquerque originally. So another great, great group that you've got to connect with. Right. Um, well, and we're in the perfect location for human trafficking. You know, like we're just north of the border. We're on two major highways. Um but we will, I will say that, so we have a position, uh, one of our, um, we have a position in our department that is a liaison with like Homeland Security and law enforcement. And we have, we do have, we have had training on like what to recognize when it comes to human trafficking. Um, so, and I think it's been a few years since we've had it, but I mean, it, it seems like something that should be put out there more often Again, yeah i think i think they said it was them that delivered that training because i'm pretty sure they said that um afd was one of the recipients yeah 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 i do remember it's yeah it's been it's been a while though um but yeah it's 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 pretty prevalent it's almost you know it's it's hard because so often people who are in that position they, they can't say anything they don't know how to get out of it they don't know how if they're going to be taken care of it's just <clears throat> But it's it happens all over the place, and it, here is a place that I'm sure is is uh, because of the location is not immune to it for sure. Now, with you being close to the border, one of the things, and you've probably heard me talk about this if you listen more than one podcast, um, is the whole, in my opinion, with what I saw through my career and what I understand the way other countries do things the the prohibition of drugs you know make taking mental health and basically making it a crime um has caused so many problems and i think the issues that we're seeing at the border really are at the you know the the reason for them are the american illicit drug consumer because we made it illegal we empowered the underworld and now we've got this horrible horrible you know just just 
horrendous um, murder and mutilation happening at the border and obviously as you said all the other things that come along with it what have you seen in your time and even maybe comparing when when you were a child and then now as a responder of the impact of your state on on the the growing violence on the other side of the border or either side of the border technically yeah um well you know i can just speak for what's happening in our city we're 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 four or five, we're about four and a half hours from the border. Um, but it, it's a straight shot up the highway, you know, up I-25 to get up here. Um, the violence, I will say in the last two years has, it's through the roof. Like, and, and I don't even know if, I'm sure some of it is impacted by, by, you know, what's going on at the border. But I think, like you said, a lot of it is impacted by the substances and by, um, you know, what's been brought into this country and what is, you know, what, what used to be, what was heroin as far as an opiate went would be, it was harder to get, it's harder to get into the States. Um, and now it's just like, you can order that order fentanyl online, you know, it's just, um, and the amount of, I just remember, I'm going to say it was still, it was during COVID for sure. Um, driving around to see patients in the job that I'm in now, I have an MDT. It has all the calls on it and I'll look and see what's going on in the city. And there was at the time, like three, nine echoes, there's three, pulseless apneic calls that went out cpr whatever three codes and they were all in you know 25 year old 30 some year old and they were all ended they were all overdoses and um that has that has seemed like it went through the roof for a while um but what also has gone through the roof is just general violence in our in our city shootings stabbings um I remember our medical director, one of our meetings had mentioned, you know, she was going over the numbers for the month and generally the number of codes were about the same as the number of, of, of 27 deltas, which are not either gunshot or, or stabbings. And um, there was a much higher number of those than there were codes that, that had come in. So it just, I don't know how it is in other cities, but I've just seen it like it's just, it's, it's kind of, that's what's happening on the streets now. That's what everybody kind of talks about is like the, the amount of violence and, and people, I think that live just that live in Albuquerque. If you watch the news, you might see it, you know, I don't watch the news, but um, I think they're kind of immune to that. Like they don't, see what we see, you know, of course, um, and hear what we hear and work in the busy stations that, you know, in, in one shift, you're going to have two or three of those. Um, the other thing that's gone through the roof is outside fires. The amount of outside fires we have because the amount of homeless we have now, um, has, significantly increased 
um, whether it's trash can fire or, you know, some of them are lit next to buildings. So of course that's a big deal. Some of them are just out in little desert areas because they set up tents. Some of them are, some of them, <laughs> one of them ended up being, I was reading or had, I think it was actually in the news. Um, they thought it was a, a tent, a homeless tent on fire, but there was actually somebody in there and that's who was in the fire. Yeah. So, and that's another, to me, like it could have been a violent act, you know? So, um, I think a, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things that have happened also, it's, it's almost like a perfect storm for the violence, whether it's the drugs or homelessness. Um, you know, people get desperate when they're, when they're out there. And a lot of people are not in their right mind. You know, if they're homeless because they're mentally ill, that seems to have always been a common thing. Um, but now, it could be because they're substance users or they've just lost their jobs and they, they can't, you know, they, they don't know where else to go, but it, it seems like it's, uh, it's been so accepted that it's easy. It's not, um, <clears throat> it's not being dealt with, um, I think in a productive way. Absolutely. Well, not a proactive way. I mean, it seems completely reactive. Okay. Well, as you said, we'll walk, we'll drive out with Narcan, well, that's that's all well and good, and that might stop deaths today. But what are we doing to the point where we don't need to, you know, dish out Narcan anymore? But this is what I—it breaks my heart. I mean, these conversations are so important. This is why I'm, you know, just in awe of everyone that comes on because they're telling us what they see through their eyes. You know, it could be, you know, here or England or Canada or Australia or wherever it is. But there's so many commonalities and like, my God, this is an international problem. But then uh, even if you turn on the news, which I'm like you, I don't watch it. I, if something pops up, um, you know, really on my social media, okay, this is a thing. Let me do some research on BBC because I trust mm -hmm. them. Um, let's yeah. see what's going on. But, you know, right now, I mean, it's, it's gas prices. It's, oh, we, we brought a basketball player back from Russia. I mean, these are all, I get it. There's an interest. If you're the basketball player's family, that's a great day for you. But where is the conversation of the obesity epidemic, the opioid crisis, I mean, all these things? Like you said, it might be a little number that pops up for two seconds on the news. Oh, we lost 300,000 people. Anyway, back to the, the football game that's coming on, you know what I mean? So, yeah, it's it's so important that we hear these perspectives because we disney I think, the, you know, the regular life. And then we focus on these ridiculous things that really don't actually make a difference in America. But, you know, well, meanwhile, these things are killing people, whether there's a virus sweeping through our country or before and after they were already killing people and people just seem oblivious to it. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The, you know, the, the, what's out in the news is I just look at it as propaganda. It's it's kind of like, look what's happening over here. But then in the meantime, there's this whole shitstorm happening somewhere else with with drugs or with fentanyl or with you know whatever it might be um and, and those or homelessness you know it's um it is completely reactive it's completely reactive and instead of um going out and you know and like i said it is reactive because we're, we're now in that situation so you have to react to it um but let's keep 
other people from getting in that situation? How do we do that? Start in the high schools, you know, like it, it just, or start it and even start younger, you know, when it comes to preparing kids for like, this is hard. Life's hard. <laughs> you know, It's not going to be easy. You're not going to be handed things all your life. You have to work for them. And, um, and, and you have to teach them how to cope so that they don't go down that road to try to find that escape, whatever it might be, you know? Um, yeah, I, I really wish it's hard to, it's hard to sit back and watch. Cause you, you, you look at a time frame, you know, even when I, like when I started in the fire service, like I said, or started with the, with the city, um, there were down and outs there. Were, yeah. There was a lot of drunk people out there that need to be picked up. Yeah, that was that. But now, like, it's it's a whole new level, and it's not just alcohol. Yeah, well, exactly. And that's the problem, I think, is that we ignore there's a mental health crisis, and then we imprison the people that turn to, you know, alcohol. Because, I mean, DUI is another one. You know, people right. are vilified on whatever social media. And I get it. I've cut people out of cars that were deceased that were killed by a drink driver. I totally get it. But... That's the same problem. DUI, opioid overdose, I mean, all these things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if we're not, if, if unless we do something, in my opinion, bold, like decriminalizing addiction, I'm not talking about being able to buy drugs in stores, but stop arresting and imprisoning addicts and actually putting a lot of that money into proactive mental health counseling and addiction counseling, then we're just going to keep, you know, have the same thing. I mean, it's, it's lunacy. So that, to me, is the real proactive thing, but... There's no one in the right or left that's got the balls to to do something like that because, God forbid that you know they don't they don't look like rock stars to their extreme left or their extreme right that they rely on. But the middle people just want to stop seeing their loved ones die, and that's what's most important. Right. Right. Yeah, I have to definitely agree with that. It. Um, and I don't know why they don't want to put those things in place. You know, you know, the, there's a lot of money being thrown at in the wrong direction, basically. <laughs> well, apparently, <laughs> you know? the war on drugs is, you know, it's a multi, multi billion. I think if I got that right, you know, dollar industry. I mean, think of all the the resources that go into law enforcement and all the gear, and you know, I mean, there's there's a huge amount of money there. And so, if you actually proactively put that money into, you know, a totally different element. Mm -hmm. you would probably fix people and therefore not keep your cash flow going. And it's it's a very, you know, pessimistic sound, but it's just, it is what it is. It's the same with the obesity epidemic. Why would you know, food companies and drug companies want people to be healthy? We wouldn't eat their shitty food. We wouldn't take their drugs, you know? So it's, it's uh, what's the, what's the term people say? Conflict of interest, having any yeah. of those people involved in the mental and physical health of our country. Right. Well, you, you keep a pro problem going to, like you said, to uh, suffice the, the income coming in. I mean, the Narcan, you know, it's handed out by a lot of agencies here. A lot of times our guys or we are people, we get on an uh, overdose and there's already been two or three that have been used by bystanders. Each one of those Narcan kits is $120. And I just, I'm like, it's so crazy that, you know, like there's opiates, there's this problem that was created. Oh, but wait, we have a solution for that too. <laughs> the same company selling you the solution. So, um, yeah, and I, I honestly, 
honestly, I also feel, I kind of feel the same about cancer. You know, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, when I was a kid, I don't remember this many, and maybe I just didn't, it was information was held for me. I don't know, but I don't remember this many people having cancer. When I got involved with barbells for boobs, um, I didn't know there was one in eight women that got diagnosed with cancer, with breast cancer. That's a lot. And that's just one type of cancer. I mean, I, so, I think, you know, you look at the history book because they did know what cancer was a lot further back than most people realize. And I, th I mean, there's so many studies and I can't cite them. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I know the names of the researchers and all this stuff. But if you look at the correlation between the industrialization of our food, which correlates with, you know, chemicals in the vegetables, chemicals in the animals, more pollutants in the air, it does correlate completely with the incident of cancer. And then you add, as we'll talk about, the extra carcinogens and sleep deprivation that we get in the fire service. Now you're taking an already perfect storm and you're amplifying it as well. Right. Right. Absolutely. It's hard. It's hard when you step back and you look at the big picture and then you see the components of everything <clears throat> like cause and effect and solution all come from kind of the same place. And I can't unsee that now. I think um, going through cancer treatment was uh, kind of opened my eyes to that also. Well, let's just kind of go to that area then. So walk me through, you know, the the kind of shifts that you were working through your career. Because, I mean, you know, that's, that's another thing I talk about a lot. Um, and then I know you transitioned to days, which is beautiful. But, you know, what was the... What, how many years at what kind of shifts and then and then talk to me about when you first got diagnosed so <clears throat> when i when i was working for uh department of defense for the army uh fire fire department um or any of the department of defense departments um it was that shift was a 72 hour shift or 72 hours a week so at the time it was 24 on 24 off 24 on 24 off you do that for three for two weeks and then you got three whole days off <laughs> and and every three months your kelly days would butt up against each other and you get five days off but you always worked 72 hours a week so that was one of my i had a lot of reasons to leave uh the government and come to the city and that was one of my reasons was i'm going to go from 72 hours a week to 56 hours a week coming to a shift with the city shift work um, so when I got to the city, um, our shifts are 48 on and four days off. So we're there for 48 hours and then we're off for four days. Um, which is great. Um, some of the stations are, are super busy. You get your teeth kicked in for 48 hours. Uh, the first day off, my first day off, basically, I was just kind of trying to recover. Um, and of course, start, you know, a rookie in the field. Um, I was coming home to an eight year old and I, at the time I graduated, Jack was a year old. So, um, <clears throat> and I did that for, let's see, I was in about a year and a half. Then I went to paramedic school. So I was on a 40 hour week for that. Um, and that was about roughly a year nine months, probably a forties or doing a 40 hour week. 
in paramedic school. And then I went back out in the field and I did that up until 2018. So I did it for 11 years. Okay. So just to jump in. So this, this, the 72 hour obviously is crazy, but I've heard some, some military firefighters on here, um, who, you know, they say, yeah, but you know, when, when the airfield shuts down at night, we get to sleep properly. We know we're probably never going to get a call. So you understand that a little bit more, but the 56 hour, um, you know, what, what's crazy now with this education I've got on the sleep deprivation is firstly, you look at the acuity impact like our ability to think as you were saying to do our job um with 24 is brutal but then 48 is to me just downright dangerous but the real question that we just seem to struggle in the fire service to have is why does your accountant your you know the person in the pharmacy the person who who bags your groceries they tap out at 40 hours but the person who's going to wake up at three in the morning cut someone out of a car and then work a pediatric code on them, you're fine with them working 56 hours a week if they don't get mandatory. Now it's an 80 hour a week. So that's what's, it just baffles me that, you know, the, the, the 48, 96, like, oh, they've got a better shift system. No, you, you, you're, you know, I talk about this as a Rubik's cube. You're spinning the fucking cube. It's the same cube. You're just changing the, the colors. We need a smaller cube full stop to give our men and women more rest and recovery. So sorry, I just wanted a soapbox for two seconds while you carry on your story. <laughs> no, I totally agree with that. I totally agree because, it, I, you know, I think the public's perception of what the fire service is and what we do is, you know, we, we go grocery shopping and we wash the trucks and we, you know, you, you hear, you see us screaming down the street every once in a while with lights and sirens um, but they don't understand, you know, like some of the, the, the amount of calls at some of these stations, you know, and some, so many people, like I was at, I worked at one of the busiest stations we have in, in Albuquerque, not that long ago. And, um, people don't even drive into that area. They don't even understand what goes on, like the amount of homelessness and, drugs being done right outside the station and people just taking a shit right on that property, you know, like they don't, I, I, I just, I feel like the the public doesn't have the full perception of that. And, um, and I don't know, I don't know how to fix that. I don't know, you know, like, I don't know where, it ha- where it would have to start to, to try to fix that. Um, but yeah, the sleep deprivation is definitely uh, uh, not a great thing. And and so when I went to the 40-hour week, I they created uh, a division. It's the, we call it the HEART program. It's the Home Engagement Alternative Response Team. And it was um, created, it's a community EMS program. And it was created because our call volume was just kept going up. Um when I got in the department, I think our call volume was about at 79,000 calls per year. And then when this division was created, it was at 110,000, 105,000 calls per year. I think this year I heard we're going to hit 140,000. So, yeah, so apparently we're not doing a job. <laughs> That just dawned on me. (laughs) Um, But at the time, so at the time that it came out, um, 
and there's been a whole lot of other things that are going on in our city, but uh, to increase the calls. But uh, so that was part of it. Uh, and and the number one call that we run on is for falls. People fall down. They call 911. So out of all the calls that we run, that's the one that we run the most. So part of our program was a repeat patient program. So if uh, let's just say we, you know, we did have somebody that, that when we first started, this person called 911 320 times in a calendar year. That person at the time was looking for pain meds. He was seeking opiates. Um, we have other, you know, we have a lot of different reasons why people call 911 a lot. Um, and <clears throat> We get those we get those people through referrals from the field, from the people that run the calls. So they put it in the report. It comes to us. We make contact. We try to find resources for them. Do they have a primary care? Do they have insurance? Um, and I will say that that person who called 320 times, the person that in our division that was working with him, built such good rapport. Um, that guy ended up, I think, smoking weed, getting medical marijuana. And he stopped calling. He wasn't calling anymore. See, pro like, proactive versus reactive. Right. Um, and, and he was an artist and he like got jobs, he started working again. And yeah, things really turned around for him. And I think a big part of it had to do with the person that was working with him from our, from our division. But um, so we do have those success stories. We also have people that, you know, shouldn't be living by themselves. They can't take care of themselves. Um, a lot of times people call 911. I, I, in the beginning, I started to notice that a lot of it is behavioral. Like it's some, it's what they always did. That's what they always do. They call 911. It's almost like a habitual thing sometimes. So we try to connect people with those resources um, we try to encourage them, you know, we're training motivational interviewing, um, we do our best in the beginning of that program within the first three months, within the people we were working with, we had decreased their call volume, I think by 68%. So it was a pretty big chunk with those people that we were working with. So, um, when we started it, it was just me and another Lieutenant. And then um, it was always funded for five, five of us. So eventually those people came on board. <clears throat> and so we also have a fall prevention program because we're trying to keep people from falling because that's our number one thing. We have a, uh, a carpenter that goes and installs grab bars and uh, ramps and does small home modifications, whether it's needing to you know, make a doorway wider to get a wheelchair in to help people from falling, you know, give them the grab bars. Um, and then we also have a stroke recovery or stroke follow-up program. Um, you know, a lot of people that have strokes and they go home, whether they have hem hemiparesis or whatever's going on with them, they end up maybe being a fall. So we're trying to be preventative in that respect by going to them right when they get discharged home, seeing what they need, um, doing an assessment or a number of assessments. Um, and then we follow them throughout the first year back home. Um, and then the harm reduction program where we 
harm reduction means a lot of people don't know what it means, but it comes it's based around addiction and substance abuse. It's basically, you know, some other places, um, I think Canada is pretty big for this, but um, maybe in the United States, there's a few where they have like safe shoot up areas where they can shoot up drugs and, and, or safe use areas. I think they call them um, in a safe environment. Uh, they have needle exchange, that kind of thing. Well, what we do is we hand out Narcan to our rescue trucks. So if they run on a overdose, they hand them a, little bag it has narcan in it fentanyl strips to test to test for fentanyl and then also uh, a page of resources if they want to get treatment and get out of uh try to get out of their addiction now, so i ended jump up in that- in, i'm sorry to interrupt because you, you mentioned this before we start recording and i was confused with the fentanyl strips so so just tell me you know what these strips actually do and, and what you're testing with them so basically they're given to people um what they're, they're, there's the intention for them is to, if somebody's going to use drugs and say they're going to use heroin, um, they can take a small amount of that and put it on the, the fentanyl testing strip and see if there's fentanyl in that heroin. Since nowadays there's unknown amounts of fentanyl in different things, even in fentanyl, I guess. Um, that's out on the streets anyway. Um, so if they don't, if they want, if they're looking to just use heroin and they don't want any fentanyl involved and they're afraid to use, afraid to have that come across or come across that and actually use that and overdose on it, they can test to see if there's fentanyl in, in what they're, what they're using. Um, I can't say, I don't know how many people might be using it just to see if that's what's in there and that's what they want to use, you know. Because I've heard even horror stories um, of more than one one guest that even cannabis they found laced with fentanyl. They've had overdoses of people that were, thought they were simply smoking weed. Right, right. Well, and, you know, they've made that legal here. Um, cannabis is now legal in the state of New Mexico. So it's really there there's dispensaries like there are Starbucks here now. So um, to buy it on the street, you know, I don't know if you live on the streets, that's where you're going to get it. Um, So, but anyway, that's, that's, those are our programs that's, that are in within our community EMS program. And I started that in 2018 when the program got put in place and it gives me a 40 hour week, so I work Monday through Thursday, four tens, 10 hour shifts. Um, my youngest son is, you know, when I went into that, he, uh, I, I didn't know I wanted to do that job. The position was coming open and, you know, I've, I've worked in brain injury and stroke rehab. Um, I've worked with physical therapists, occupational therapists, all those things. And they kind of lend to a lot of what we do. Like I have a little bit of background of what needs to happen. And when somebody goes home from rehab, when they've had an injury or a broken hip, whatever it is. So I ended up at the time it was going to be beneficial for my son and me to uh, be in, be home every night. 
So, um, so I went ahead and, and applied for it and I got the job. Like I said, the doors open <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I've been doing that for four years and <laughs> I tell everybody in the beginning, you know, people would ask, how's, how's the heart program? It is the hardest job I've ever had. Like I was not, I'm not a social worker. Um, I'm a firefighter, paramedic, uh, but we jumped in feet first and we were going to fix everybody's problems and get them to rehab and treatment and fix all of these things. And um, it was a really sharp learning curve and uh, was hard. And not only was it um, not, it was hard not knowing what exactly what we're doing, but it was emotionally draining. Like it, I come home and just be drained because some of the, you know, these patients that are repeat patients that you go and run a 911 call on and you're like, all right, what do you got? All right. Okay, you want to go to the hospital again? Get the ambulance. Let's go. Now we're spending an hour, two hours of time with them, trying to figure out what it is going on with them, what it is we need to do for them, um, and then some. Sometimes getting invested in them, you know, and and it's hard to see. Um, I still, I she's this person's no longer my patient, but I keep in contact with her and. Um, you know, she was an alcoholic. She got help a number of times in the last couple of years and, um, and has done really well at times. And, and then to see that all fall apart. Um, it's hard, it's hard to see sometimes. Um, and then you get attached to the families. And so we, it was, it was, uh, we're still learning, but we learned, um, I think one of the big things we learned was that, you know, we don't have all the skills to get these people the things they need, but, but we can point them in the right direction. We can navigate them to what they need. And, um, in, and in the meantime, be supportive of them to try to get them there. So that's where we're at now. And during COVID, I don't know how far, where you want to go next. No, go wherever you were about to. So um, in January of 2020, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so we initially thought we being people in our department and myself that because uh, in our state, we have presumptive cause, which means that certain things are covered, cancers are covered by, <clears throat> by the state, by workman's comp. And um, so as we started looking into it after I was diagnosed, it turns out that I wasn't covered because I was not diagnosed before the age of 40. So each cancer has basically kind of stipulations of like, okay, colon cancer you have to be a firefighter in the state for 10 years to get to be covered by it so um so we thought initially that i was but i wasn't um that wasn't the end of my world i mean <laughs> it was it would have been nice um but of course my department 
and everybody I know came to the rescue. Um, a friend started a GoFundMe page and there was enough money put in the GoFundMe to cover everything out of pocket that I had to, that I had to pay pretty much, pretty much everything. Um, so, you know, you, you always think of the monetary stuff. And at the time I didn't want the GoFundMe to, to be started. And, and they convinced me by, you know what, you don't want to worry about this. You don't want to worry about how are you going to pay this or how long is it going to take you to pay this off? Um, and I look back now and I'm like, wow, you know, they were right. Like that's the last thing I want to worry about when I'm, when I'm sitting, sitting, you know, going, going through chemo or whatever it might be. So um, 2020, I was diagnosed 2000 or in January of that year, uh, February of that year, I had uh, surgery, I had a lumpectomy. And in March of that year, March 17th, March 19th, I started chemotherapy. And um, I did 16 rounds of chemotherapy that lasted until the end of July. Yeah. So that was all during COVID. <laughs> the first, the first visit of chemotherapy, um, I had, I was able to take somebody with me. And then a few days after that visit, I got a text message from the cancer center saying, uh, you can't bring anybody in with you unless you can't, unless you can't get in there on your own. You know, there's some people that are more frail and older and they need help getting in and out. So, um, so then I, and you know, it was, it would have been great to have somebody there that I, I, um, that I knew, but honestly it was the nurse I had ended up becoming my friend. Um, the people around me, we all talked, you know, I speak to them sometimes if they felt like engaging in conversation. Um, and, and in there and in those conversations, <clears throat> I found myself very fortunate to be in the position I was in. Um, I had a cancer that was very aggressive, but very treatable. So <clears throat> some of the conversations I had with those people, I, it was, it was kind of clear that they weren't going to be there very long. So it put a whole new perspective on things for me. Um, and so when I finished chemo, that's when they did the video that you picked up. So tell me about that. People that haven't seen it, talk to me about what that video showed. So, um, it was my last cancer treatment or last chemo treatment. Sorry. And, uh, so I would have people when I first, when I first started, um, the first four treatments of chemo were like the roughest is the most toxic chemo there is out there. Um, and they give you certain drugs to counteract that. So I always, they said, you need to have somebody drive you here and pick you up, take you home. So, um, the last 12 weren't as bad. I drove myself half the time, but the very last treatment, uh, my friend had told me, you know, I want to take you. And then my captain at the time was like, I'll pick you up. So, um, so they picked me, I walked out in the parking lot. He says, where are you at? And I, so I walked out and, um, 
it was him and it was our PIO guy, our public information officer. And I was like, Hey, you know, and so I didn't really quite realize what was happening. And they were walking as they're walking me to a certain part of the parking lot. I see that there's fire trucks out there and there's people holding signs and they're there for my last chemo treatment. And, um, it's funny because I, I look back at the video now, like, and the two guys that greeted me both were bald. Like, <laughs> and so was I. <laughs> I was like, and I think I was, I was laughing at that at the time because I'm like, look, you're bald, you're bald, we're all bald. Um, so, um, yeah, it was, it was, um, that was the last treatment, but the video goes into also, I didn't realize what was exactly happening at the time, but my friend, that's my hairstylist. Her husband also works for our department and he has had cancer or has cancer. He's still living with it. Um, but when I was, when I got to the point where she told me, when you, when you want to have your head shaved, just call me. So that morning, or I, I told her, look, like the hair was, we had cut it and it was, I was trying to keep up with it. And I have dogs. I'm trying to keep up the dog hair and I'm trying to keep up with the thing going on with the kid. And finally, like I found hair in my food and I'm like, all right, I got to call it. This has got to come off. And so she said, I'll come over on Monday, one o'clock and shave it. I said, okay. So that morning my captain called me. He's like, I need to, um, I need to bring by some paperwork for you to sign, whatever. I said, okay. I, he goes, what time? I go, well, do you want to see me with hair or without hair? And he said, what are you talking about? And I think actually he didn't call me. We were on a, we were on a text string with everybody in our office. And um, I said, well, my, I'm going to have Sarah come shave my head at one. And then the next thing I see is like head shaving party. And, and before, <laughs> before I knew it, like within an hour, they had set up a zoom link um, and there was, my captain was coming over and, uh, my son, well, I made sure both my kids were here, especially my youngest. Cause my youngest had asked me, he's like, can you wear a wig? Like if you lose hair, you know, he was like really concerned about how I was going to look. And I'm like, you know, I, I really want him to be here to see the process. I don't want him to show up bald. So, um, anyway, long story short, uh, and this is all during COVID and, but we made it happen. There's some people on zoom, the captain came, uh, Sarah came and Sarah had set up a camera. She goes, can I just set this up here? And I was not paying attention to what she was doing. You know, my head was going to be shaved. So in that video, getting back to the video is the process of her shaving my head. And, um, and then everybody else was on zoom there's two, two, three other guys from my department, from my division that were shaving their head with me. So, um, so they took clips from all of that and put it together in this really emotional um, video of just basically it was showing the support of what was given to me over the time that I was going through chemo, you know, people showing up from the stations with, with food. And it was just, I, it was overwhelming. I can't like, I still look back and I still, I get chills of like the amount of um, 
I felt like I was just encompassed in the safety net of people. And, um, and I was not going to fall through any cracks and I didn't, they, they were there. They, they, um, you know, my family was a big part of it. My kids, my friends, um, but the department, that's, that's, that was my, the, the biggest family that I have, you know, and they, they just, the amount of support and the amount of, uh, anything I needed people calling and texting and checking on me. Uh, it was overwhelming. It still is overwhelming. Apparently <laughs> I think it always will be overwhelming <clears throat> and I feel incredibly fortunate, um, to have had that. Cause I know a lot of people don't get that, you know, and, and, you know, like I technically was alone, you know, my kids here, 50% of the time, but it was okay. Cause I didn't feel like I was alone. I never really felt like I was alone. If I needed anything, I just pick up the phone and somebody would be here. So that was uh, incredible, but I was allowed to, another incredible thing was because of COVID our division kind of got shut down because we couldn't go see people anyway. We couldn't make those patient visits. And, um, for me, the timing was perfect. Um, they took, they took the people that were in our division and they, they were attempting to do, try to do different things, um, to, to limit the exposure of people in our department to COVID. So they had COVID response vehicles. So some of our people went on a different shift and they would be on these vehicles and they would just try to get to the patient first and see what it is exactly they needed. Do they need to be transported? Um, do we need the whole engine crew and another rescue here? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and then I was, I was told you're going to work from home. So I basically was making phone calls cause that's all we could do anyway to try to keep up with, uh, the patients that we had, the referrals we had coming in, um, you know, nobody was getting physical therapy or occupational therapy at home. It was really unfortunate. Like a lot of these people that were getting services at home before they, that kind of all stopped for them, unfortunately. So, um, but I did my best to, to keep things afloat in that division when it came to the repeat patients um, via phone the whole time. So now just as a tangent, you probably have got quite an interesting perspective or lens again on, you know, what you just discussed during COVID, but after, you know, you got a lot of these people that you were having an impact on a lot of these resources were helping people and then they were all taken from them. What has been your, um, you know, what have you observed as far as the ripple effect, not from the virus itself, but all the, the kind of restrictions that were put on an entire country? Oh, well, I think um, that was, that's a, there's a lot of things that that covers. I think 
medically people didn't get what they needed. Like if they were getting physical therapy, you know, like I said, nurses coming to their house, whatever it might be um, socially hugely impacted. And that's not even talking about kids. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother big can of worms when it comes to the whole COVID situation. But um, sometimes a lot of these people, that's all they would see were the people that were coming to see him, see them for PT or OT or, you know, social workers or whatever it might be. Um, People who had substance abuse issues couldn't go to AA meetings, you know, Um, they didn't have phones that had internet on them to go on the zoom, which isn't the same. You know, I've been told over and over by different people who, who would go to those meetings that it's, it's not the same. Um, I think just everything that people depended on day to day, just, just fell through the cracks and, and, you know, for most of us that I know, we're fortunate. We don't depend on many things. You know, we, we go out and we do them ourselves or, you know, we got to go to the doctor, we go to the doctor, whatever it might be. And a lot of these people couldn't do that. You know, they just, they couldn't do it. And um, even the, you know, adult protective services in our state weren't making home visits. And how do you, how do you assess somebody or their living condition if you don't have eyes on them or eyes on their situation? I've heard the same with the kids. Um, some of the guests that have been involved in, you know, the child protection element, they were like, well, some of our best reporters were the, the teachers. And now these yes. children aren't in school anymore. Yes. That was something that was brought up to me right when that happened was like, how often do kids get noticed by teachers that something's not right, you know? And then you're putting them in a home all the time that's abusive. They don't have any outlet. They don't have anywhere to go. So yeah, it um the 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 effects of of that now I'm sure like there's there's you know, I don't know, I can't say for I can't say how many more people are in the hospitals or how many more people have medical conditions because of that. I do know that my breast surgeon did mention to me that during that time, like breast breast surgery, when it came to cancer was even considered an elective surgery here. And they shut that down. And she had four patients die like within three months. Um, That could have been prevented. And then you had the people that were afraid to go to the hospital because of, you know, contracting something that ended up dying of heart attacks or gallbladder issues or whatever it might be. There's, there was, uh, there's those cases too. So I can't exactly say that we've seen a, a lot of things that were directly correlated with COVID when it comes to people's medical issues and why they call 911, but I can't say that we're not seeing them either. You know, we don't look at that kind of data um, because it's, it's hard to know, you know, it's hard to know like how many people could have gotten help somewhere else and then, and then couldn't just couldn't go anywhere. Couldn't do it. 
one of my wife's friend's mother passed away and she pre-covid was i I don't want to use the word hypochondriac but she would take all all the vaccines and be a doctor at the moment she was worried about something so she was very trusting in the healthcare world with all the politicizing of this last two years she was left scared of the vaccine um and i'm very middle of the road i don't think it's the magic pill by any way shape or form but i think it definitely would potentially minimize the effects of covid and especially some of these people that already have comorbidities and maybe give them a chance between making it out of the icu and then leaving via the morgue instead and so that's the thing she probably would have got the vaccine had it just simply been hey here's another strain of this flu virus it's very dangerous we do have a you know a vaccine for you if it's something that you want to do it's available for you boom um and she didn't take it and she died of covid so um again there were comorbidities but she wasn't like a you know grossly obese woman she had i believe diabetes and some other things going on already but that is what's so sad as well is that as you said people being scared away there were people that needed to go that didn't go and then there were people that calling 911 and flooding the ems system that had a sniffle or had tested positively of covid but never taken a moment to go wait a second i'm actually not feeling bad at all you know that was just swamping so we had all the wrong people in the er's you know mm-hmm. and then all the other wrong people staying at home right right and a good part of um, good good part of through my treatment was the very beginning of COVID. So it was I don't even think they were testing people when I was in chemo. I don't think that was had started yet. Um, <clears throat> and there was one time that I had had some of the strangest side effects from the last twelve rounds of chemo. It was it was a drug that I was told, yeah, it's gonna you can it's gonna be easy. It's way easier than the first four, um, and it kicked my ass up and down the street. Um, and I had a fever, like a low grade. You know, every time I went to the cancer center, they take take my temperature, and I always had like a I had a low grade fever for like three weeks, and I was. There wasn't a test. I'm like, what do you want me to do? Like, I don't, I don't. I feel like I'm on, like I'm going through chemo. (laughs) I don't know. My, and my doc was just like, I I guess that, you know, there's so many, there's a few things that she's just like, it must be the chemo. Like she wasn't sure either. So, but when I did get COVID a year ago, I felt like I was going through chemo. Like my body felt the same way, like that body ache and the, the lethargy and just, it just felt very similar to chemo. Um, it didn't feel natural, like a natural virus, but anyway, with the, with the patients, we did what we could. We also even like our home engagement program, when I did end up going back to work in October after radiation, we were doing in-home vaccines since we had the ability to go to people's homes, uh, the department of health had people that were homebound that were requesting vaccines. So they used us to do that. And they also used us to do testing like twice a week. We would go to the state fairgrounds here 
and cars would drive through and we would test for, I don't know, six hours, four hours a day, uh, COVID testing. But like you said, so often it was, so what do you do with that test now? You know, I mean, why, why, um, when it was detectable, it was already past the point of you probably already spread it to somebody else anyway. <clears throat> it was like chasing, like a dog chasing their tail, you know, you're never going to catch up to it. I got uh, some sort of real shitty flu about three weeks ago now, and I'd done a load of international travel. I was, you know, jet lagged. I was sleep deprived. So my immune system was down and, you know, whatever was floating around that time kind of kicked my ass for a, a couple of days. And people kept asking me, oh, have you done a test? And I'm like, you know, I've stayed away from people when I had these symptoms. You know, I was in a hotel. I stayed, you know, that was what you've always done for 48 years. I mean, not when I was a baby. I didn't have that kind of foresight at nine months old. But, you know, when I had actually had, you know, enough sense. Um, but I'm like, we've got to get past this now. It's not a baby. We're not choosing names for our viruses. Are you sick or are you not sick? You know, are your symptoms getting worse and worse and worse? It doesn't matter if it's flu or COVID or whatever else. Are you deteriorating? You need to go to a hospital. Are you feeling okay? You do not need to go to a hospital. We're back to there again now. So we've got to get past this. Oh, was it COVID? No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. We never named them before. This particular one was bad, especially if you were older and sicker, you know, you were even more vulnerable or obviously going through chemo or, you know, immune suppressants or some of those things. But yeah, I mean, we, we, we've got to freaking hit the punctuation point on this, this whole, you know, way of thinking and, and let that go and move on and start thinking about, which has been my biggest thing through this whole pandemic is we've got to make people healthier. That is the only way that we can prevent as many deaths when this happens again. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, there's, there is some nasty things that are going around here too. And, um, it's true whether it's, you know, before COVID, the flu was killing people, you know, and, <clears throat> but we didn't wear masks and we didn't shut down the world because the flu was killing people. And I do understand this was highly contagious and there's a whole new element, different element behind it. But, but we are at that point where you can call it the flu, you can call it COVID, you can call it whatever you want. If you're sick, you just stay home and you don't, try not to get anybody else sick and you try to keep your, like you said, your immune system up to where it should be, you know? Um, and I traveled back to North Carolina a couple of weeks ago to see my son. I felt like I was coming down with something and I was like, oh, I don't want to miss this trip. Like I have been wanting to see him for a while and go visit. And so I found a place that had, um, or actually <clears throat> a physical therapist told me about, um, and I had looked at, looked, looked him up before just out of curiosity, but, um, it was a, vit a vitamin infusion is what I got an IV vitamin infusion. And they threw in some extra zinc and, uh, ascorbic acid and glutathione. And, um, the next day I was, didn't have a sore throat, felt much better. You know, <clears throat> I think taking care of ourselves is, and that's one thing that people couldn't do, you know, the gym shut down during COVID and, all the things and, and just being social with people like being locked down by yourself in your house is for people who are normally social is very difficult. 
and that the element of human touch and just being in the presence of another human, there's something to be said about that when it comes to supporting your immune system. So yeah, I, I, I hope that we just get back to that. And even when I was going, <laughs> even when I was going through chemo and somebody from the station would show up with food, you know, they didn't come in my house. I stepped outside my door, but, and most of the time it was like, I don't, I'm going to hug you. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't care. I'm going to hug you. I like, I need to hug somebody, you know, like I need this. And, um, and I was very thankful that they were there. So um, I didn't get denied any hugs, but <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, it was important. I think it was, really, it was just really important. You know, I felt like that was important. And I, 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 and I tell people this and I, I don't know how to explain it, but when I, when my doctor found that lump in my breast, I asked her, I said, you found something. And she said, yeah, but it could be a, could be a cyst. It could be whatever. And in my head, I was like, not even in my head, in my core, I was like, that's cancer. Like I knew it was cancer. <clears throat> But I also somehow knew that I was going to be okay. Like it wasn't, oh my God, that's cancer. I'm going to die. Oh my God, that's cancer. How long am I going to live? It was, there was a brief moment where I thought, well, what's going to happen to my son if something happens to me, you know? And then I was like, but that's not going to happen. Like you're going to be fine. There was an undeniable knowing I had that it, I was going to be okay. It was going to suck. I knew that. I didn't know how much, but <laughs> um, I knew I was going to be okay. And I felt the same way about like having that happen during COVID. Like I can get, I can get it from going to Costco that's open all the time. I can get it, you know, <clears throat> if I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. If I'm going to, I told my kids, if I'm going to die from cancer or if I'm going to die from COVID, that's how it's up. That's how I'm going to go. I can't wrap my any anxiety around that. Um so yeah, it was it was it was definitely hard. The treatment was hard, you know, I followed chemo with radiation. Um I had 22 rounds of that. And then I ended up in physical therapy because it um I had some issues with that side of my body my arm, my armpit, there's this thing called cording where your, um, there's scar tissue that attaches to your lymph node, lymph system and your nerves. And, um, it's almost like, it's almost like a string is hold. It's like a cord holding your arm from going all the way up, you know? So went into physical therapy, did that. And then they also <clears throat> had me in there. There was a program called Thrive at um, the health plex, this place that I was going for physical therapy. And it was just for cancer patients. And it's three months. Basically, you go in, they, they put you on weight machines, they put you on cardio machines, and they have you do certain exercises through that whole time to build up your strength. And I, if I would have known about it, I might have gone during chemo. <clears throat> I don't know if I would have. 
I walk my dogs every day that I, at least two and a half miles every day that I was going through chemo just about every day. Um, but that program was really helpful, but they didn't want me to get my heart rate over a certain, um, certain rate because the chemo that I was on very taxing on the heart can cause heart damage. And, um, oftentimes during chemo, I had shortness of breath at rest, just sitting there. So I listened to everything they, you know, the doctors had told me and the physical therapist, and it took, it took some time to do that, but I kind of set myself back in therapy. Uh, I took my son, they were getting ready to shut down the state again, right before Christmas. And I told my son, we got to get a house. We got to go do something different. And so um, we went to do an archery lesson and um, I just, I, I fell in love with it right there and kept shooting. The guy was like, all right, you know, you can keep shooting as long as you want. And when I did that, like my lymphatic system was like, I don't know what you think you're doing, but my whole arm was just so swollen and the physical therapist was like, yeah, you can't do that for like another six weeks. You can't pick up a bow. So <clears throat> that was another thing that actually um, I look at, I look at all of the whole cancer thing and, <clears throat> and it, I, as a person try to pull something positive out of what I have to deal with and, you know, looking and seeing like the support from my department, that was huge, big, positive big positive thing. Um, and then my outlook on, on life, I think changed a little bit or quite a bit after treatment. <clears throat> when I started, when I went to that archery lesson, I decided to go back cause I liked it so much. And, and I thought, you know, they're shutting down the state. I'm going to go buy a bow, just a beginner bow and uh, a target. And I'm going to shoot in my backyard. So I did that. And then I took another lesson and the guy that was giving me lessons, he's, he said, are you going to put in? And that means put in for a tag to see if I can draw to go hunt. And I was like, and I tell everybody that after cancer treatment, it's like anything that is remotely interesting. I'm like, yes, you know what? I am going to do that. Like, do you want to be blonde? Yes. I think I want to be blonde too. (laughs) Um, so I did, and I ended up drawing two tags, and um, I'm a hunter now. I bow hunt. <laughs> and it was, like, it was a lot to get ready to go do those those hunts. Um, but, like, somebody once said to me, they said, you can walk into any fire station in this, in this city and somebody there bow hunts. And, again, people from my department – Hey, I have a pack for you. Hey, um, I have a bow hitch. That's this product to help carry the bow. Hey, you know, another friend of mine was kind of pretty much my mentor, um, telling me you need to do this, do this, take this course, that kind of thing. And, um, it was huge. The amount of support that came out for that. Cause they wanted to see me, you know, just get out there and, and even just to get out there. And, um, it was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. Like I'm hooked. 
I'm hooked. And it wasn't even, it's not all about just getting the animal. It was about being out there, about being in the wilderness and completely quiet and walking through the forest as slow as you can to listen to everything and smell everything. And um, I, I, the, my only regret is I have, I wish I would have started this earlier in my life, but it's just one more thing that came along. And if I hadn't gone through that experience of cancer, I don't know if I would have ever decided to do it. So. Well, firstly, I mean, it's amazing to hear. And again, it, you were doing everything that people were told not to do during COVID. You were outside, you were exercising, you were, you know, if you were hunting with other people, you have community. It also reminds me of one of the posts you made a, a while ago where I think you were grilling and everything on there you'd either grown yourself or hunted so talk to me about your philosophy on nutrition through this because what i see and sadly my wife just lost her best friend to cancer it was ironic she'd gone through the chemo and then died after a surgery that was supposed to be removing um, parts of her colon and liver but it, I, this there seems to be again in the medical side and not blaming the physicians this is the the culture they've grown up in it was like, well, this medicine will fix you rather than what I would assume was, just, well, maybe the foods that you were eating could have contributed to this. So let's change what you eat. Let's go to as close as to homeostasis as we can and everything you can control. Whilst if you choose that, we give you radiation, we give you chemo, etc. So talk to me about the nutrition side. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was, I think it was through hunting that, and going through the chemo um, and, and looking at the causes of cancer that made me realize that what, what you put into your body is, is what makes up your body. It, it, it's what creates whatever happens in your body, whether it's cancer or whether it's energy or whether it's, you know, another illness. Um, it can have a lot to do with that. And <clears throat> I think in, in in hunting and actually getting an animal and sourcing that own sourcing that animal on my own and knowing exactly where it came from and then you know field dressing it and getting it in my freezer and then taking it out and making it for my son and myself i knew exactly where that came from and that's why i had such a big garden this year i was like okay I want to know if I can do this, you know, like shit hits the fan and everything shut down and there's really true food shortage. Can you do this? And, um, and realizing that, yeah, you can, you can do that. And, um, and you think about like, if you do any research on, you know, where the food comes from that's bought in the store, there's a lot of crap that goes into that. I mean, eat meat and vegetables, you know, I'm not even talking about the box stuff. I'm not talking about stuff in the boxes. It has all the preservatives. Um, you just got to wonder where they come from and what, what goes into that animal. <clears throat> and I think that a lot of like, it just, I don't, you know, going through the whole experience of, of cancer and, and having that, and, and then being able to go and hunt and source my own food made me realize, yeah, you can do this. And this is definitely better for you. You know, the meat is so lean. Um, 
it's the, so protein enriched. It's, you know, what are they eating? They're eating everything that's out in the forest. They're not being fed antibiotics or whatever it might be. And then the same with the vegetables, you know, it's, it's hard to have a garden without having pests and not using um, any pesticides. I had a friend or I have a friend that has a family land in North Dakota and she moved up there and she was like, I'm going to be an organic farmer or at least have a big organic garden. And it was, um, I think she didn't realize, and she learned a lot about like how much goes into that without using pesticides. Um, so that, and just, you know, I've listened to different podcasts and stuff about how farming does take place in our nation and how there, there can be such a, um, a, there's a, there's a better way to do it. And that's the way we've been doing it for but, hundreds and hundreds of years until, you know, very, very recently. And that's what people understand. You know, I mean, feeding, you know, real food in our schools. That's what was happening in schoolhouses around the country for the longest time until Cisco started delivering processed shit and McDonald's and, you know, all those got into our college campuses and the soda companies got vending machines put in the schools. So, you know, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's just going back. And even with the organic, I'm not well-versed in this at all. But the experts in the farming world, the, the holistic farming world, know, well, okay, if you plant this plant next to this plant, they'll actually keep the pests off because they don't like this one. And it may not be what you eat. You just put it there as a deterrent for the bugs against the potatoes, carrots, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're building. And also another thing, it's okay to eat an apple with a wormhole in it. That's what a healthy fruit looks like. If it's shiny and symmetrical, you got to ask yourself, why didn't anything try and eat this? Because it's full of shit. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. It's so perfect. Why does it look so perfect? Yeah. All the, all the ones that are all shaped weird and stuff. Yeah. Those are the best ones. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I think it's really important. And I try, you know, like I try to, I try to eat healthier. It's funny because when I was going through chemo, my doctor, my oncologist, you know, she said, just try to eat smaller portions and, and, you know, eat the best that you can. And, and I went to go see her and my, I had, you know, every, before every chemo treatment, they do labs and my, my protein was down. Albumin, I think was down. And um, she said, it's, what are you eating? And I said, well, you know, you know, meats and vegetables. And, and I was like, oh. I take that back. Um, so my kid likes to eat Wiener schnitzel. <laughs> I had not eaten that. Like, I can't even tell you the last time I ate that. And, um, and then the Marie Callender's pot pies from Costco, like were my favorite, one of my favorites during chemo. And I lost my taste, a lot of my taste, my smell was still there though. Um, and I, and I, I go, I guess, I guess I'm not, I'm not eating good. And she goes, Lorianna, that's okay. Those are, those are comfort foods. She goes, I have people that come in here and all they want to eat are Cheetos like all day long. That's all they eat. Cause that's all they have the appetite for. She goes, you're fine. You're, you're doing okay. Cause I started to like beat myself up. She's like, no, no, no. you're doing okay. It's all right. You'll be all right. So, um, yeah. So, it, and then it was back up the next week, you know, like it was the labs or my body was all over the place, but 
it, it's an important part and it just made me see more and more like how important it is the the food our food you know what we put in our bodies um and it it it's it's almost like you know the whole opiates being ex- thrown out there and it's the same thing with sugar sodas with mcdonald's with whatever it is it's there's that here we got this for you there's but it creates this problem but we also have the solution for you so it just opened my eyes to um it's an industry it's a big industry well i want to hit on one more area before i let you go because we've been chatting for two hours i want to be mindful of your time but the obvious, you know, focus on someone who is diagnosed with cancer is obviously the physical fight, you know, as you're talking about the drugs and the recovery, but there's a mental health element to that alone. But we, you touched on before we started recording that you'd found yourself in some dark places, you know, I'm assuming prior to that as well. So again, I'll, I'll give you the microphone. Can I walk me through the mental health side of, of your journey, whether it was the fire service or even before that? Um, I think, uh, there's a long history in that. Um, I think, you know, we talked about like coping and having coping skills or not having coping skills. And I think ultimately when it comes to, I guess, what we call mental health, um, how healthy you are when it comes to emotional and mental health in my belief is starts a lot with the foundation of coping skills. Um, we only learn those things from, or I only learn those things from what, what, what was around me, my parents um, who were wonderful, wonderful people, religious people, prayer was their way to cope, um, strong belief in religion and spirituality. Um, so but when you pray for something and you, it doesn't pan out the way that you think it should or the way that you want and you don't get it, I think that kind of falls, it kind of shatters that belief sometimes. Um, <clears throat> and and you go to other things. For me, growing up in Barstow, it was you know, a really small town. We all knew each other well. We were all pretty close. And there was a like a high number of, people that I knew that died in high school. And um, we used alcohol to cope with that. You know, we just deadened, numbed everything and and kind of got through it the way we did. And that continued on into college and there was other substances involved. And I think, um, and then I had another, I had two other friends die that actually were both from Barstow. And um, I fell into a pretty deep depression. And and if I wasn't drinking or using any other substances, that might not have happened, I don't think. I don't know. Could have. But it just made it worse. And um, so I got to a point, a really dark point, where I just felt like I like. And one of those people that died had committed suicide. And I started thinking he had the right idea, you know, like you don't have to deal with this pain. If, if you 
you don't have to deal with this pain. He, he didn't, and he chose his way out. And, and at that time <clears throat> I was in, I was in college and um, I think I had mentioned that my, my brother is schizophrenic and one of my brothers. And I just kept thinking about my parents and about like, how could I, you know, how could you put them through that with having to deal with my brother also and having to, to take care of his needs and, and feel they felt it was their fault. He was schizophrenic. It's just a whole nother story, but you know, they had enough on their shoulders already. And I somehow ended up with a group of people (laughs) And it's so funny because one of these people I'm going hunting with next, next month, I haven't seen this person in like 30 years. Um, and this group of friends, like we didn't, we were never apart. Like we somehow fell into a routine where like we'd go to school and go to work or whatever. And where are we going? Where are we meeting or whose house are we going to? And we'd all, we like go to their house and sleep over. There was like four or five of us, you know, a couple of them were football players. And then another one was a friend of mine. And so I, I found myself with them like almost all the time. And I look back at that and, and somehow like that depression, it just kind of went away. I just kind of end up, ended up out of it. And, <clears throat> and they weren't in, they didn't know what was going on with me. I didn't tell anybody. And um, and and then I ended up, you know, just doing okay for quite a while. And fast forward to, you know, before I before I was headed into before I went into the city, I was working for Kirtland, and I um, had just got married. I think it was a couple of years in or a year in and I, same thing. I was in a, I was in a, it was not a good relationship and felt like there wasn't a way out of it. Started to fall back and I fell back into that depression, started to feel again that, you know, it would be easier. Um, not easier. I wouldn't say that. I think, I think that, that pain and that thought of suicide is more of it, it. There's pain. There's like emotional, there's, there's physical pain because of what's going on emotionally and mentally. And, um, but once again, it was, it was my kids. It was like my son at the time, my oldest son, cause I hadn't had my youngest son yet. Um, it was, there's, there's no way, there's no way I'm going to do that to him. I can't. I can't do that to him. Like, <clears throat> I just can't see myself um, causing that pain to him. And figured myself, figured my way out of that hole again. Um, and and it was not long after that that I went into the fire academy. And every day was hard. Every day was physically. So it was hard. Like my whole body would hurt. I'd come home and like everything hurt. I was 40 years old, 41 years old when I was going through that. And, um, but I did it every day. And, and that was like, I remember telling my captain, 
he came to see me when I was on probation, the one that was in the fire academy, our drill instructor. And I told him that that academy saved my life. Like it gave me purpose. Like every day I was there and it was hard, but I knew I was getting something done. I knew I was accomplishing something and um, it, it saved my life as hard as it was. It wasn't as hard as like not doing that. So <clears throat> when it comes to the, to mental health and, and in the fire service, I found that I found that like, I have a certain resilience when it comes to all the calls that we run. And I was thinking about this the other day, um, you know, for whatever reason, it's easier for me to be on that call and to see that scene than it is for me to hear about the call and imagine what, what, what went on in that scene. Um, recently down the street from my house, there was a girl, young girl that was hit and killed. And every time I turned into my neighborhood, her family's put out her picture. They put out decorations for Christmas and there's candles lit every night. And it just fucking crushes me. Like I'm like, but if I were on that scene it may have maybe different, you know, I don't, I'm not even sure how to explain it, but it's harder for me to just imagine what might have happened on that scene than it is for me to be there. <clears throat> um, but I think that now because of, you know, over the years, because of relationship, relationship stuff, I think that's what kind of kicked it off. I did go to therapy and I was off and on for a number of years going to therapy. I think everybody needs a tune up every once in a while. Um, and through that, I learned how to, how, how to cope, how to deal with things, better ways to do things. Um, and I know now that like, um, numbing something, numbing feelings doesn't make it, <laughs> doesn't make them go away. Just, it just postpones it for a while, you know, and then it's still there and it's there tenfold when you're, when you've started to feel everything again, um, throughout, throughout the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years I've started, uh, meditating that helps a lot. Um, you know, making sure I get outside. That's a big thing. Um, just finding other interests and, and, and coping with things differently, you know, just being able to sit back and go, okay, well, how am I going to handle this as opposed to just reacting to something? Um, and it, it's, you know, a lot of people in the fire service or emergency services, I think have difficult times with what they see at work, rightfully so. Like there's definitely things that happen that we see that nobody else is going to see and nobody else is going to understand um, and I think, but I, I do think that if you start early on, as far as like teaching these people or teaching people in, in the fire Academy, coping strategies and ways to deal with these things, how to diffuse them healthily or in a healthy way that they can prolong their career. They can get through their career without, um, 
some of the burdens or some of the heaviness that other people may feel if you don't do that early on. <clears throat> but in, in, in the fire service, what I have for me, I feel like the stuff that I've had to deal with or in my time in the fire service, the stuff that I've had to deal with was the hardest for me was stuff that was in my personal life. And, but I'm, I'm sure that things that I see or have seen on, you know, in the job haven't made it easier. It just makes it a little bit harder. You're just piling more stuff on. But right now I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm in a really good place um, when it comes to uh, any, like, I don't know. I think in the past um, drinking was, um, it was just something I did and did it regularly to numb myself. And if I were to do it now, it's to have a glass of wine with dinner. You know, when I went through chemo, I always related how I felt during chemo to drinking. I always felt hungover. And I'm like, I don't want to feel that way again. <laughs> like I, I don't want to feel that way again. And and I don't know if it's because the older I get or whatever, even if I have a glass of wine or a couple of beers, the next day I'm like, ah, you know, you you what do we what we put in our body, right? It just you can feel it. I can feel it more because it's not present all the time. Um, but I think, I don't know. I just, I just feel that um, if, the more we prepare, you know, we prepare everybody to throw a ladder, to pull a hose, to, to do all these things, but we don't prepare them for the hardest part of the job. And I'm hoping that maybe. Well, we I mean, can, firstly, thank you. I think it's more. it's so important to hear all these different voices, and there are different reasons and different journeys through. Um, one thing that you talked about, you know, the the healing element of your you know, your crew that you had in California, and then obviously the academy experience as well. I had a guy on the show, uh, Johan Hari, and one of his phrases was, "The opposite of addiction is connection," and I agree completely. And look at the. The support you got from the men and women of Albuquerque Fire Department when you went through your most recent, you know, cancer. So, I mean, that in itself is, is, is incredible. But also what we bring in, I've talked about this before, having tested for multiple or, or worked for multiple fire departments, I've been through multiple hiring procedures. And over and over again, I do a polygraph, which I had to lie through because just like you, when I was younger, I did some stuff that was super fun, never detrimental to my life whatsoever. But <laughs> the first time I ever applied for fire department, I was honest. They threw the application back in my face and I was like, oh, so I got to lie to be a firefighter. Got it. And then got hired ever since. But, um, so, but, so the polygraph is complete smoke, smoke and mirrors. I mean, it's just bullshit. It really is. And then the psych tests, everyone in the psycho psychology world, they tell me, oh, the test that they give you guys is like ridiculed in the psychology world. It's, it's a ridiculous test. So we already have this budget that we waste on these two things. You know, you do a background check. You know, are you a, a good person or a bad person? Okay, good. Do you have a resume? Okay, excellent. Then why not take that money and actually give our new recruits X amount of counseling sessions at the front door? Now, if they have anything that they're bringing into the job, which let's face it, we all do, you're able to process it and, as you said, become more resilient rather than being somewhat fractured 
now you've actually kind of repaired those cracks. Um, but then also you've got an immediate go-to anytime, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, you now have a relationship with a counselor that you can carry on through your career. Right. Right. And, you know, the, the first place, you know, I've worked for the government so that it wasn't, they weren't very proactive on this forefront and we weren't either here for a long time. Um, but there was a, a span of about six months where we had one person that was in our department that committed suicide, two people that were removed from our department, retired, um, that committed suicide and one in an adjoining city, that fire department. And, um, so the chief at the time was like this, we can't, this, something has to change, you know? And so we had a peer team and, and which I was part of, and they actually created a position. It's a peer lieutenant's position. So they, that lieutenant oversees the peer team. Um, I started a mental health and wellness committee, which I'm part of. And one of our first goals was like, let's make that team bigger. Um, let's get more people on that team. Let's get more people certified to be peer supporters. Um, so we did that. And then also the chief brought in a behavioral health specialist. So we're one of the departments. I don't know how many departments in the nation have somebody like that, but she's a social worker, hired her from back east. Uh, she has experience uh, with fire department and other jobs when it comes to um, behavioral health. So that has been put into place. And um, so there's big efforts being made. We also have our, our union has, uh, it's called the MAP, which is Member Assistance Program. So they have a, a list of counselors that um, are vet, vested or vetted by the union if you, if I go to that count, a counselor off that list, then my copay is paid for. Cause that's the first thing people ask is like, well, what's the copay, you know? And it adds up like therapy doesn't, it's not a, like a visit and then you're done, you know, it's, you're there for a long time. So that takes the financial burden off of our members. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things. And that, that has been in place for like, I don't know, 15 or 18 years. Um, but it ha it's well used now, like it's well used. Um, we're trying to take away the stigma of, you know, back when I got in, back in Pasadena, it was like you just suck it up, buttercup, you know, whatever you saw, you saw, you know. And and you did talk about it. Sometimes you did, you know, that was, we always talk about it now in our in our behavioral health meetings that like, a lot of the peer stuff and be and sort of counseling, more just listening, takes a place at the kitchen table in the station. Um, but we're not experts in that. So like there's a lot of times people need more than that. So but what I'm I'm trying to push in we've been trained for it's called safe talk. It's basically uh, suicide prevention for everybody to be able to have that ability. And I'm trying to push it to get it in the academy, to get it to the cadets, because let's lay the foundation. Let's give it to them now 
we've got all these people in the department and hopefully we can train them eventually. But if you start that, if you start at the beginning, like I said, you, you, you train them how to pull hose, you train them how to throw ladders. You need to train them how to take care of themselves. So um, it's, I think the behavioral health program we have is definitely making an impact, a positive impact. Um, And, but it can definitely be grown to make even a bigger impact. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that's what's going to happen. And, and what, what is taking place now just continues to happen. Well, it sounds like bigger. you got one of the more progressive programs out there, definitely. And the barrier to entry, what I found around here is that we have some culturally competent clinicians, but they're not even in a network. They're so sought after that they just do cash only. So you're talking about a hundred bucks every time you sit down. Now, most firefighters in the U.S. are not well paid. So, you know, you've just basically excluded that as even being an option. So to have a person that you have in your department, like I said, whether you give them, you know, X amount at the beginning at the front door, however that works, but having that go to and making it normal from the beginning and getting rid of this. I've talked about this a lot. There's, there's this kind of tendency in the young firefighter to think it's a badge of honor to have seen as much horrible shit as you can. And then 10 years later, you're like, why mm-hmm. the hell did I try and see all the horrible shit? You know, and it's, you know, you, I remember early in my career, people have pictures on their phone and stuff. Like, why would you, why would you take, I mean, firstly, it's unethical, but secondly, right. why would you want to capture that? You know, so, so yeah, so changing that right. mindset from, I think it's, it's the, the, the misperception of what a firefighter is supposed to be like by some of, you know, the, some of this distortions to, you know, Yes, you're going to have to do some some hero shit, quote unquote, when you're actually in the middle of it, when you're making entry into a fire or whatever that particular rescue looks like. But you've also got to remember that it was kindness and compassion that led you to put that uniform on. So you've got to retain that with the people that you serve. And you've also got to remember to show it to yourself as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think that we take care of ourselves enough, you know, like a lot of us don't. And um, I think maybe, honestly, that may be another thing I learned from cancer was to do more of that because before I didn't really do it it so much, you know, there's being a mom, a single mom and, and just doing the job that I do, you know, you're trying to take care of everybody else. Um, But to make sure that I take that time for myself and everybody needs to do it. You know, and that's why I think that like, you know, the hunting thing or being outdoors, there's, there's so much to be, to be uh, gained from that. And like you said, the connection, wow, connection with people is the medicine connection with nature is the medicine, you know, um, it, it is, it is, it is the, what did you uh, say is the, the opposite of addiction? Yeah, that's right. So <clears throat> yeah, it's really profound and I can I can attest to that for sure that if there's more of that and there's just more awareness of of that and um and that it's okay, like it's okay to to not be okay. It's okay to realize that you're kind of fucked up and you need to get help, you know. Um the people that have that awareness and go, all right, I'm going to co- how do I, and I, we get, I get those calls, you know, as a peer, like who should I go see or what do I do next? And you know what, first of all, 
you're freaking awesome for calling and just even acknowledging it, you know? Um, so yeah, it just needs to be, I think it's definitely different than when it was when I got in the fire service, like it's way more accepted now, you know, than, than when I got in the fire service, when you start sitting down and you're like, so, uh, who, who are you seeing? Or, you know, how long have you seen a counselor? Well, it's been, <laughs> it's not a big deal to talk about. And, um, you don't have to divulge what your problems are. It's just, it's okay. It's okay to Absolutely. go see somebody. Or even to, to have, you know, times that when you're low and that's normal. Like today, I kind of got sideswiped by tears. I was listening to some songs. I'm planning another video to, to make a certain point about the health takeaways of, you know, of, of this last two years. Um, and all of a sudden I was weeping at the stove. But, and then I'm like, you know, first thought, thought is like, well, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, wait a second. You know, I lo- my grandmother passed away. I just lost my beloved dog. My <laughs> wife lost her close friend. This is fucking normal. You know, it's sometimes it's good to have a good yeah. cry and let that shit out, you know, and hug your dog and go for a walk and do all yeah. those things. So that's the other thing I think is just because you fe- feel sad doesn't mean you have to go see a counselor. But if you're burying it with alcohol or you're denying it, that's when it's like, okay, now this is, this is the next click over. I probably need some extra pair of hands on this. But if you're going to do and see, the things that we see on top of the human experience, there are going to be highs and there are going to be lows. So allow yourself to cry, to scream, to get angry. I've got a punch bag that's been brutalized for years now. (laughs) You know, this is also normal. So there's a sliding scale between, you know, I definitely, like you said, I don't need a tune up or do I need some help right now? Or do I just need to freaking cry, get it out and then, you know, reset. Right. Right. Yeah. That, and that's, well, and that's the thing that, you know, so often that I think even as a kid, it was, you just don't show much emotion is what was, what was kind of put towards me was you just deal with it, push it down. But there was no like unpacking it later. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of like, you don't, we don't, we don't, you know, we don't get angry. We don't, we don't, sometimes, you know, we would cry or whatever, but especially like in, in our job, you don't show that. Even in the station, you may see anger, you may see um, frustration. You don't see anybody crying, you know, it's very seldom that you see that. Um, But the one thing you do see is laughs. You do see, comedy and i think that's like a lot of times that's where that's how we deal with things and so and i'm not saying that that's burying it sometimes it might be burying how you really feel but sometimes that's how that's how you get to the next call you know and it might it it, you know the humor it's like if anybody else heard like the jokes that we had going, yeah, there'd be a lot of people that were triggered. Like <laughs> a lot <appalled>. of people. <laughs> there'd be a lot of people that would just be like, how can you talk about that? Like that? Oh my God. You know, but amongst us, it's like, oh, you know, whatever, you know, it's just, it, it is our humor. Sometimes it gets us through a lot of this stuff. Um, and that's important too. I think it's really important. Just as long as we're not using it to 
to hide the real yeah or feelings yeah, again, that we have crossing that line between humor and pranks and you know um uh, indoctrination versus hatred and hazing and all these things that i think people confuse our firehouse jokes with um yeah it's the intention behind it as well well, right. it's been an amazing right. conversation. We've been chatting for two and a half hours. Um, for people that I know, it's it's crazy, isn't it? It flies by. Um, people listening, if they want to reach out to you or find you online, where are the best places? Um, well, I'm on Instagram, uh, Loriana Seventeen. Uh, you'll have to look at the spelling because it's <laughs> nobody spells my name right. I should probably change that <laughs> handle to something easier. <laughs> I've never been in the position where somebody asked me, how do they find you? Um, but that's probably one of the easiest ways to um, contact me. Um, I'm on Facebook Brilliant. also. Well, I just so. want to say thank you. Like I said at the very beginning, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation. Um, yeah, the, the journey that you've been through mentally, that you've been through you know, physically, the, the incredible um, camaraderie, the brotherhood and sisterhood that some people say is dead i call bullshit on that i mean watch that video you'll see this is the fire service this is the fire service i adore so i just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, and coming on and telling your story today you're so welcome and i want to thank you for doing what you're doing like bringing light to all the things that we've talked about all the things that you have on your page um there i'm you know, I've benefited from it for sure. And I'm sure there's been a lot of other people that have benefited from what you're doing and the people that you have on here and, and their, their stories and how they've helped other people. So thank you. Thank you.